Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you. I haven't seen this room like this in a long time, and I thank God uh, for his mercy toward us and this opportunity to gather together. <clears throat> Y'all pray for me. We make it through this together. My name is Dave. I'm the manager of ministry operations here at Summit Crossing Limestone. I am thrilled for the opportunity to open up God's word together with you this morning. Um, our church is in the middle of a pastoral transition, and our elders are uh, in discussions with a uh, candidate, and those discussions are going well. Uh, so we uh, appreciate your prayers uh, for that process. Um, they've been giving us periodic updates on how that's going. Sounds like it's going very well. I'm encouraged, and uh, we should be expecting, I think, some more updates from them about that uh, sometime soon. So if you're visiting with us, we want to say a special welcome to you this morning. Uh, one of the things that we do here at Summit Crossing Limestone is generally uh, when uh, during the teaching time on Sundays, we try to um, go verse by verse or section by section through the Bible. Just take a, a book or a section of scripture at a time and just unpack what's there. Uh, we need the word of God more than we need what you think I need to say or, or, or anybody else. Uh, and so we just try to mostly uh, limit ourselves to that. We do some topical teachings at other times, try to break it up, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but for the meat and potatoes, for the most part, uh, for our teaching is we just want to go straight through Scripture. So uh, we are continuing our series through the Gospel of John, and this week we'll begin in chapter 4. I'd like to read the text for us before we dive in. The Apostle John writes, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Judea is in the south, Galilee is in the north, Samaria is in the middle. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. So would you open our eyes to your glory in this text? Would you change us by your spirit? For the glory of your name, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, there is a lot going on in this text. In Jesus' time, Samaria was a part of the nation of Israel that had a lot of history. Joseph, the son of Jacob, the patriarch from Genesis, was buried just a few hundred yards away from the well where Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman. In the Old Testament, after uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the way to David and Solomon, after them, the nation of Israel uh, fractured and was divided between the northern and southern kingdoms. The Assyrians came and captured Samaria in the north around 722 BC and took most of the people away into exile. And then as was kind of normal sometimes for, for emperors to do to kind of uh, keep people under submission. They took people from other nations that they had conquered and relocated them in Samaria uh, to mix people up. So now you're, you don't have a territorial God anymore. You don't have your territorial pride anymore. You're all just kind of one of us now. Uh, the king of Assyria moved people from other nations to live in Samaria and they intermarried with the Jews who had been left there and they mixed worship of Yahweh, the true God of Israel, with idol worship. When the exile was finally over years later and Jews from the nations came back to their land, they saw the Samaritans as half-breeds, people who were tainted both racially and religiously. But over time, the Samaritans came to see themselves as the true people of God, the true descendants of Abraham. They believed that only the first five books of the Old Testament were inspired by God, which is what the Sadducees also believed. So they didn't believe the part of the Bible where God told Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem. But they did believe in Genesis, where a lot of important stuff happened in the lands that later became Samaria. And they believed in Deuteronomy. And the way they read Deuteronomy, they believed that God wanted a place of worship built in Samaria. So around 400 BC, the Samaritans built a temple to the Lord God, the God of Abraham, on Mount Gerizim, in, or Gerizim, in Samaria and worshiped him there. So there was a, a temple on a mountain in Jerusalem, and there was a temple to the same God on a mountain in Samaria. That, of course, fueled all kinds of tensions and conflicts between the Jews and the Samaritans, and eventually a Jewish leader from Jerusalem took his armies and came and destroyed the Samaritan temple in 128 BC. So about just 150 years or so before this conversation. Scholars say that Jesus and the Samaritan woman very likely could have even seen the ruins of the Samaritan temple on the uh, peak of Mount Gerizim from the well where they had this conversation. I say all that to say there were generations of pain and anger and hostility between these peoples. Some Jews wouldn't even travel through Samaria. Um, sometimes preachers have exaggerated that, or, or, or scholars, or maybe they've read and sound like no Jews would ever go through Samaria. Jews would go through Samaria, but they would go straight through. Uh, they 
were not there to hang out. They definitely were not there to make friends. Uh, they used it because it was convenient, and otherwise you'd pretty much have to go on across the river through Gentile territory, and that was worse. So, um, but Jesus chose not only to go through Samaria, but to speak with a woman there, which was pretty shocking culturally. This was scandalous. Now, just normal, accepted society, men do not speak in public with women who are not in their family. That was unheard of. Uh, people start gossiping about you immediately, assuming the worst about you, and, and y'all must be uh, up to something you need to not be. Uh, verse 27 says that when the disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Now, it was culturally okay under, under certain circumstances for a man to uh, speak to a woman. Like if you're at a well and you are in desperate need and you don't have anything to draw water with, you can talk to a woman and ask her to draw water for you if you have an urgent need. But Jesus, in this story, it seems like he never gets the water from the Samaritan woman that he asked for because it was clear to both of them that he wasn't in urgent need, but she was. Jesus is crossing all kinds of social barriers and talking to her because the Father is seeking outsiders like her to worship Him. And that's the thrust of the text. Now, when you read this passage, very familiar passage, we've probably heard the story tons of times growing up if you're uh, raised in a Christian tradition. When you read the story, where do you see yourself in the text? Who do you naturally identify with, Jesus or the Samaritan woman? I think we often jump to identifying with Jesus in the story, and we read it mainly like Jesus is giving us an example to follow. So here's a good lesson about how we should treat those people, those outsiders, those sinful people. Well, it, th this is a good example to follow. God wants us to follow Jesus' example, but that's not the first or even the main reason why John recorded this for us. Before and more than this is an example for us to follow, this passage is good news for us to believe. This is the gospel of John, the good news of Jesus Christ according to John. He wants us to see Jesus' glory and believe in Him and have life. Jesus loves outsiders like us, like me and you. That is good news. I think John wants us to see in this text and to feel that we are, ourselves are naturally outsiders to God. We need Jesus to come to us. We don't, we don't have a standing on our own to commend ourselves or to, to lean on or to brag about before Him. The Samaritan woman was an outsider among outsiders. The Samaritans were cultural and religious outsiders to the Jews. Women in that society were in some sense outsiders to men. They were, they were disadvantaged culturally. And this woman, it seems, was an outsider to the other women because probably because she was living with a man who was not her husband. Neither Jews nor Samaritans approved of that. It was scandalous. Now, that's most likely why she went to the well alone at the hottest part of the day when most women would go together in the morning or the evening when it was cooler. This is time to hang out and socialize and do the work when it's easy to do the work. She's doing hard work and she's doing it alone. It is possible, we don't know 100%, but it seems very likely that she avoided the other women probably because she wasn't welcome with them. She was alone. She was an outsider. 
And I think John, the gospel writer, intends for us to put her conversation with Jesus side by side with Nicodemus's conversation with Jesus in chapter 3. Notice how opposite those two people are from one another. We're going somewhere with this. Nicodemus was Jewish, part of the majority culture. She was a Samaritan, part of the minority culture, looked down on by the majority. He was a man, privileged. She was a woman. Theologically, Jesus will get to the point that he was more right. She was less right. He was admired for his moral goodness. She was looked down on for her moral history. Nicodemus was an influential ruler. The Samaritan woman was an outsider among outsiders. So these are pretty opposite people. Nicodemus had everything going for him, but this woman had very little going for her socially and culturally. And yet, John makes it abundantly clear both of them needed Jesus. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You think you got everything going for you? You need to be born all over again. You're so messed up. You're like, you need new life. You can't trust anything that you have. You can't depend. Like, it's not enough. You need to be made new. Sin has wrecked us that deeply. And he tells the Samaritan woman, ask me and I'll give you living water. You don't have a life in this water. You need what I can give you. John wants us to see our need for Jesus no matter who we are. It doesn't matter where you come from or what kind of family you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. It doesn't matter what people think of you. If you are a human being, you need Jesus. Jesus came to live the life that we should have lived, the life of righteousness and faith and love and worship to God all the time without sin. He did that for us. And he came to die the death that we deserve to, to die. He took the penalty for our sin on the cross, and in his resurrection, he killed death for us. If you don't have Jesus, the Bible teaches, one day you will receive the judgment that your sins deserve. But whoever believes in Jesus, John says, trusting him, receiving him, is not condemned, but has received eternal life. Jesus came to save you. He calls to you now through my voice, through this passage. Jesus calls to people. It doesn't matter if you've been in church all your life. It doesn't matter if you can quote the books of the Bible backwards. If you are born a human being, you need to know him, not just know about him. And it doesn't matter what you've done that you're trying to hide. It doesn't matter what you've done that you're proud of. We all need Jesus. He will forgive us and wash us and welcome us into God's family if, if we would just put our trust in him. And whether you've, you meet Jesus today or you have walked with him for 60 years, God wants us in this text, I believe, to be amazed again at Jesus' kindness toward us. At the very beginning of this conversation, in John chapter 4, the woman was amazed that Jesus would be willing to speak to her. And the whole rest of the conversation, everything Jesus says serves to make her more amazed that he's talking to her. That's how the passage unfolds. There's, there's a lot uh, of, of truth that's unpacked here, and yet everything he says makes her more and more astonished that this man, this man, this man would be willing to speak to me as he does. Nicodemus was so proud at this point in his journey I think he struggled to believe that he needed to be rescued by Jesus. But the Samaritan woman was so broken. 
I think she struggled to believe that Jesus was willing to rescue her. But Jesus kept on showing her in this passage that he was willing, and she kept getting more amazed. I think God wants us to be amazed with her as we put ourselves not in Jesus' shoes first, but in her situation as outsiders to God. So let's look together as we walk through the passage at five levels of amazement at Jesus' kindness in these verses. So we're going to just walk through the passage, and she goes from amazed to more amazed to more five times. We're going to do that, all right? First, beginning in verse 7, John writes, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, which sounds rude in uh, America, but that wasn't rude. It was, it was a request. It was polite. And uh, it, it's a, a dignifying thing to give somebody the, the opportunity to show hospitality to you, that, that they're not so beneath you that you couldn't uh, use their help. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That Greek could also be translated, For Jews do not use dishes Samaritans use. If you have an NIV Bible, you might see that translation option in a footnote. It could be translated either way. The disciples had gone away into a Samaritan village to buy food, so they were willing, as Jews, to have some kind of dealings with them. In fact, if you went through Samaria from Judea to Galilee, it was a three-day journey. You had to stay somewhere. So at some level, Jews were willing to have some, uh, maybe just brief, uh, formal dealings with Samaritans, like the disciples going to to get the food. We'll let you cook our bread, but we're not going to share a dish with you. Like, that's the kind of situation that they were in. But Jesus dares to ask for a drink from a Samaritan woman's cup. He could have just waited. The disciples came soon enough. Instead, he chooses to treat this woman like an equal, like a human being with dignity and worth. So this first level of of amazement is that he surprisingly treats her with dignity. I'm not going to shun you, Jesus says. I'm not going to scoff and look down my nose at you. I'm not going to act like I'm too good to have anything to do with you. I'm not worried that you will make me unclean. I'm not going to treat you like, excuse me, I am going to treat you like an image bearer of God. I'm going to treat you like you matter because you do. This was the last thing that she expected. If Jesus were to step out of heaven bodily and come up to you in your neighborhood, how would you expect him to treat you? Like you're gross? Like he wants to kind of hurry and get away from you because he's so holy and you're so not? Or do you think that he would talk to you with sincere kindness, like he wants to be near you, like you're worth talking to? Wouldn't that be awesome to hear Jesus speaking kindly to you? That's what he's doing right now in this text. That's what the Bible is, is the voice of Jesus to us. As we open it and see his glory, it's living and active, and he speaks to us. She was amazed that Jesus treated her with dignity, but Jesus wanted to ratchet up her amazement further. So secondly, in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Now, those questions sound very silly to us, because on this side of the conversation, uh, we know that Jesus was talking about spiritual water. But it actually wasn't that silly of a response, because at the time, living water was a term that was meant fresh running water from springs. There's stagnant water and there's living water, the, the flowing water. So it sounds on the surface level at first like Jesus is saying, I'll give you fresh spring water. And she's like, how are you going to do that? You don't have anything to draw with. Are you going to create a whole new well? That's a, that's a big deal. But of course, Jesus was referring on, so on the one level, he, he wants her to uh, be intrigued. He wants her to keep the conversation going. He wants to make her more and more amazed as they go. But, of course, his promise is referring not to spring water, but to Old Testament promises like Jeremiah 2.13, where God spoke to the nation of Israel and said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says it's an evil thing to turn away from Him and to try to be satisfied in other things instead of Him. And He says that's what we do as people. Even His people did that. All of us do that. God made you to have your soul thirst satisfied in knowing Him, and all of us have turned our backs on the fountain of living water and traded it for, for muddy, broken stone, like water holders, that not only dishonor God because we're, we're turning our back on, on the true water, but they don't work. They're broken. The water leaks. We stay thirsty. God is the fountain of living water, and Jesus is saying to her, I am the one who can give you that gift. I will give you God Himself. What This running thread we've seen in the first chapters of John, Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, the living water. You must be born of water and the Spirit, Jesus told Nicodemus. So she's thinking, digging a well is a big, impressive deal. It took a historically great man to provide this well for this area, and it's going to take an even greater man to provide fresh running water without any tools. Who do you think you are? Greater than Jacob? Like, that's just, it's just a ludicrous claim on its face, and she is straightforward with him about it. Like, how's that going to work? What kind of great person do you claim to be? Jesus says, yes, I am greater than Jacob. And that's a running theme through John as well. He's, he's greater than Moses. Uh, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's greater than the temple. Uh, he's greater than the sacrificial lamb. He's greater than Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's the point. Jesus is saying, you're amazed that I treat you with dignity, but you don't even know who I am. The more you know about me, the more amazed you'll be that I treat you with dignity. You need to be more amazed at my greatness and my generosity. So second level of amazement, he is incredibly great and generous. He's incredibly great and generous. He says, I can provide for your need greater than Jacob ever could. You take great pride in Jacob being the one to give you this well, you need to be more amazed in the person that's sitting right in front of you who looks very unimpressive, tired and thirsty, no tools. Jesus said to her, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So this water in this well 
will meet your need for a few hours and then you need more. It's not enough. It doesn't sustain. But the water of God, the Holy Spirit, eternal life, His presence, fellowship with God satisfies the thirst of your soul forever. No one makes this kind of offer unless they're either out of their mind or the son of the living God. He's piquing her interest, and she's becoming increasingly willing to believe. He treats her with dignity. He claims, on top of that, to be incredibly great and generous, even though, thirdly, he already knows her whole story. Time to ratchet up her amazement even more. He already knows her whole story. We might think only good people receive good gifts from God, but Jesus is kind even though he knows our whole story. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This perpetual walk of shame all by myself or maybe the sneering of my neighbors. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. How is it possible that you know my past and everything I've been through and how I'm living right now? Small town, not a lot of, like, we, we know who comes through here. Haven't seen you before. There's no internet. Haven't been publicly shamed on Facebook or whatever. Like, this is blatantly miraculous. How can you know the sin I'm in right now and still offer me eternal life? Either this is about to be a cruel trick and you're going to retract the offer and turn away from me like everybody else, or my amazement is going to go through the roof. So many people let their guilt and their shame and their regret keep them from Jesus when Jesus moves toward us with grace because we're guilty and because God loves to forgive you. Now, this is not to heap shame on her for her multiple marriages. We don't know how her marriages ended. Maybe she was a widow several times and she was abandoned the other times. We don't know the story. But I think the point is that anyone, put yourself in her shoes, anyone who's gone through that much loss and rejection has deep scars and probably feels unlovable. Something's gone wrong in her heart, it seems. Maybe she's given up on marriage as a possibility, as a good thing, like many people have. So she'll live with a man, but she won't marry him. I can't commit, don't want to, let me just settle. I just want to survive. I don't want to do that again. I don't think Jesus is shaming her or tearing her down, though it is sinful that she's in that relationship that way. I think what he's after is he is helping her to become increasingly amazed at his kindness toward her. That this man, greater than Jacob, who dignifies the outcast, he supernaturally knows her whole story, and instead of walking away too, he graciously offers her the gift of God, knowing what he knows about her. She, she replies, the woman said to him, sir, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, this might have been a diversion from her pain. That's too hard. That's too embarrassing. That's too raw. I don't want to talk about me like that. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about theology. Maybe she was 
grasping for something culturally, like Nicodemus had all this stuff, and maybe she was like, no, I believe that I'm part of the real people with the real place to really impress God. Maybe. We don't know for sure. It's possible that it was simply a sincere question because she doesn't have a theological category for a Jewish prophet. Remember, she only had the first five books of the Bible. They believed that they were the the true people of God. They did believe that a Messiah was coming, but that he was going to be a Samaritan. And this man, clearly from God, and he's a Jew. What's going on? I don't understand. Let's talk further about what is true. So maybe she's asking for his take on true worship to learn more, because if he's who he seems to be, and he says the Jewish Bible is true, she needs to know. If her whole belief system has to be overhauled and she needs to start trekking down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to God in order to be accepted by him and she's going to have to endure all and more layers of of rejection and ridicule from Jews on top of everything that she's experienced, this is a lot to grapple with. She's got to wrap her head around this. She wants to know. Now, we don't know if it was a sincere desire to know more or if it was a dodge to just get the spotlight off of herself or maybe some combination of the two. But whatever the reason that she asked, Jesus tells her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here. This hour that Jesus is talking to you at the well, the hour is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So don't worry, Jesus is saying, that whole paradigm that God Himself set up, that whole paradigm of of get to the right place and do the right actions, it's going away. It's not about making sure you get to the right spot. God will one day soon and at this very hour receive worship from you at a different address. It's not about going and doing now. It's about believing and receiving. He says, yes, the Jews are right. All 39 books of the Old Testament are the Word of God, not just the first five. But even though you got that way wrong, I'm here to live out the New Testament, the New Covenant, to bring that about, where worship is not in temples and rituals, but in spirit and in truth. Aren't you glad that we don't have to make pilgrimages to holy sites in order to worship in God's presence? I think of my Muslim friends. They take their pilgrimages very seriously. They take their religious works and obedience very seriously. They've got to check the box. They've got to do the thing. And, and they put some, some measure of pride in their accomplishments and believe that they're, they're impressing God and they're worshiping Him in the way that He prescribed. They worship what they do not know. And yet God is seeking a people from among them to know Him. He's seeking them. He's seeking us. He's seeking Baptists and and non-denominationalists and all of us. 
Jesus is saying the time has come through my cross and resurrection for God's people to receive the Holy Spirit and worship Him all the time, wherever they are. It's not in form, in, in just mere outwardness, it's in truth. You mean it, it's sincere because you know Him. A lot of Christians wonder, well, what does it mean? Tell, it sounds like a formula. It sounds like a trick. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? I think if you're a Christian, if you've received the Spirit and you sincerely worship God, you are worshiping in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus is saying. This is sort of a, a counterpart to Jesus telling uh, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need this new nature. Jesus is saying you need this new worship. It's of the Spirit. If you believe in Christ, you have that. In amazement number four in this passage. He says the Father is lovingly seeking her. I'm talking to you. I came to you. I'm clearly the, a prophet. I'm, I'm talking to you about the, here's what, what's going on. You get in on this. You get to hear this. God's not seeking ways to avoid you. God's not seeking excuses to keep you away. He's seeking you. You may be trying to hide and perform and earn with good theology and good, you may, may, maybe your Bible reading, maybe your uh, small group attendance at some level is, is an attempt to hide and earn and perform, but Jesus wants you to be amazed at his loving kindness toward you and to be disarmed and just receive his grace. He already knows what you want to keep hidden he already knows what you wish you could go back and change. And he seeks you, not because he needs you, but because he loves you and because you need him. Worship. Worship the Father in spirit and truth. Worship is the overflow of joy. We praise what we love. You were made to overflow in joyful worship of God forever. And Jesus comes to us, crossing all the barriers to seek us out to give us that eternal joy in God. Last level of amazement. He's the Messiah who speaks grace to outsiders. I'm not just a Jewish man. I'm not just an outsider. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a great prophet. Jesus is the one. This thirsty, tired man at the well is the Savior, the King, God in the flesh. This man who crosses every social barrier with stunning, shocking kindness is the one who saves rebels and brings outsiders into God's family. From religious groups like Nicodemus who get saved later, from people with, who are, don't even have their religion right, but they're, since they thought they did, or, or, and everybody in between. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you. I'm him. I love that. It's like later in John, I mean, Jesus keeps pressing on the amazement just to emphasize, yes, I'm doing this on purpose. It wasn't a mistake. I'm really choosing to speak to you. Like later in John, he uh, heals a blind man, uh, disregarded by society, no way to fend for himself. Uh, heals a blind man. First thing this blind man sees is Jesus who opens his eyes. Jesus uh, steps away. Other stuff happens. Jesus meets him again and asks him, hey, uh, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He says, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Like, I gave you your sight. Jesus is like, I, I, I will sp I'm the one speaking to you. The one who reaches out to the leper and says, 
I am willing, be clean. He touches him when no one would touch him. That's the kind of Savior that he is. Jesus knows you, and he draws near to you and dignifies you by his grace and gave his life to rescue you. So let's believe him. Let's believe him for salvation. Let's keep believing him. Let's keep being amazed at him. Let's keep loving him and delighting in him and feeding our souls on the good news of Jesus. Trust him. I'm asking you today. Trust him with your pain and your rejection, your sin and your hopelessness of what you thought life was going to be, and it has not turned out that way. Jesus is more amazing than you suspect, and he cares for you right as you are and where you are more than you can imagine. He has welcomed us in, so let's believe and worship him in spirit and in truth, and yes, of course, then let's, let's follow his example. I'm closing right here. Um, let's love others the way that he has loved us. Across every boundary, genuinely, when we look out at the, at the world, the enemy wants us to see only us's and them's. Only enemies to fight against or allies to fight alongside. But Jesus wants us to see the world full of either children of God or potential children of God. Either recipients of grace or candidates for grace. Either you're just like us in that you have Jesus or you're just like us in that you need Jesus. So when you think of the person who's most unlike you in every way, politics, philosophy, lifestyle, whatever, God wants the, the emotion that wells up within us not to be scorn and ridicule and hatred and, or, or, or disregard or, or superiority, but compassion like Jesus, love, dignity. Because apart from Christ, we're, we are the exact same. We didn't earn it, and they can't either. But Jesus came freely to us, and they can have him too. We either love you because you're family, or we want to love you into God's family. The more blown away we are at the gospel, the more we will treat others with dignity like Jesus, and the more we'll move toward them with love and gospel hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross and the resurrection. Thank you for paying the price to bring us to yourself. Thank you for seeking people like us, outsiders to you, outsiders in our sin, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We don't deserve you, but God, we get to be children of God and drink living water that satisfies forever. God, we praise you. We celebrate the goodness of the gospel. And we pray, oh God, even today, even right now, would you save some people who are soul thirsty and may not even realize it because they've been trying to satisfy their thirst on, on muddy cistern water. Lord, would you pursue us Show us that you care about the wounds. You understand the pain. And you want us just as we are, not to leave us as we are. God, I praise you that the Bible says Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Lord, save us. Save, save some today. S satisfy us in you and send us to the world, we pray in Jesus' name.